Hello, and welcome to the Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about the history behind the new traditional Western series, Hellbenders, from my partner, Richard Prosh, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre, Richard Prosh, and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but usually ride solo for these Speed Listen bonus installments. Today, however, Rich is joining me in the studio to talk about the history behind Hellbenders, his new three-book Western series from Wolfpack. All three titles are now available. Hellbenders is book number one, then Seven Devils Road, followed by Killing at Rimrock. All three have met with great five-star reviews and solid buzz and are burning up the cyber trail in Kindle, as well as selling well in paperback. Hey, Rich, it's great to be able to talk to you about Hellbenders and the history that inspired your series. I know the series has been a hit with Western fans, but I was wondering, what is it about Hellbenders that is also appealing to casual readers who might not be into Westerns? Well, thanks for having me on the show today, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike a lot of action novels, both Seven Devils Road and The Killing at Rimrock offer a sense of hope. And I think that is something that we all could use a little bit of. Make no mistake, there's plenty of gritty, blood-churning adventure But at the end of the day, in these books, I'm not offering any spoilers when I say the good guys are going to win, and the future is going to look better at the end of the book than at the beginning. I enjoy reading books like that, and that's, I think, part of the reason I love this series so much. You've based each of these books on specific historical incidents. You use those as the jumping-off points. How much of the series is a traditional Western, and how much is historical fiction in your mind? Well, I'm a big fan of the old Fawcett Gold Medal, Dell, and Avon original Western paperbacks from the 1950s and 60s. So character and action is always going to push the plot harder than history. In fact, if it's a choice between something being 100% historically accurate or telling a good story, story overwhelmingly wins for me each time. That said, I don't think the either-or choice really comes up too often in these books, I'd say the Hellbender series is 70-30 traditional versus historic. The first book's action plays out against the background of the Texas Cortina Wars in the Rio Grande Valley. The second book, Seven Devils Road, happens on the famed Butterfield Overland Trail. And the third book deals with the infamous Texas Troubles, a series of north-central Texas fires blamed on abolitionists in the summer of 1860. Maybe we can blame them for the fires in California this year as well. (laughs) Which of the books is your favorite? Can you pick a favorite child? Uh, It's hard to say because I like each of them for different reasons. When we talked about Hellbenders before, we shared that along with the main character, Texas Ranger Lynn Jarrett, and his gun-savvy girlfriend, Reese Sinclair, the Hellbenders team would include a variety of characters. As much as I like Lynn and Reese, it was fun in the second and third book to introduce new team members. One of my favorite characters in the first book was the runaway slave Micah LeMay. Does he make an appearance in the sequels? Oh yes, Micah plays a big role in Seven Devils Road, both as a member of the team and really he's the driving force behind the entire mission. So this is almost kind of a Mission Impossible setup, the way you choose new characters to bring into the stories. It is, and in fact, unlike Mission Impossible, I have a more diverse cast. The name Micah LeMay, was that at all inspired by the writer Alan LeMay, who wrote The Searchers as well as Unforgiven? It might be a nod to that, yes. (laughs) Okay, I just want to let you know that I read it and had some thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) 
Seven Devils Road is a flat-out wall-to-wall race. From reading the reviews, I see I'm not alone in calling it a page-turner that starts out fast and hardly ever lets up. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but it's really appropriate for this book. Was that your intent in writing it? Yeah, after putting the team's origin together in the first book, I wanted to break free of the ranch setting and put the characters through their paces. Not only do we have a bunch of exciting new characters like Flood Tyner, a dealer in firearms, the gunslinger Ned Brock, and Griffin Kale, a card sharp, but I've put them into some treacherous environments. There are river crossings, rugged terrain, and dark way stations along the road. Any inspiration from the film Stagecoach? Possibly a little bit. The Butterfield Overland Trail is so naturally rugged and diverse. There are big hills, rocky gorges, wide open spaces. And in the first couple hundred miles, there's just so much to explore. The hellbenders in this book don't go farther than down to Texas. They don't go the whole way to California. So the entire trail itself gives you lots and lots of inspiration. So John Wayne doesn't turn up to rescue everybody at the end. He doesn't. (laughs) It's essentially a chase story, though, right? Yeah, and there are literally seven devils or seven villains who need to be vanquished. There are devils ahead of them setting out to ambush them. There are devils chasing behind them. There are devils coming at them from all sides. And so they really have their work cut out for them. But I like how you keep us guessing for the first two-thirds of the book as to who exactly those seven devils might turn out to be. I don't want to give away anything too much, but some of the characters at the beginning of the book that are obviously the bad guys might not be so obviously the bad guys as you go along, or they could turn out to be even worse than you think they are. So there are a lot of fun character twists and turns. In these stories, you have our heroes run up against a criminal organization known as the Order of the Ivory Compass. How real is that organization, and did you base it on a real criminal enterprise? All three books take place in the two years before the Civil War. One of the things that I really found intriguing as I was doing some research about these two years, there were so many secret societies and militias springing up. There were militias in the South and militias in the North. There were secret societies in both the North and South. And these different factions were kind of already in a cold and sometimes shooting war against one another. In reality, one of the secret societies was called the Knights of the Golden Circle. It was a secret society founded earlier in the 1850s. And the objective of the Golden Circle was to found or create a brand new nation known as the Golden Circle. The country would have been centered in Havana, Cuba, and would have consisted of the southern United States, if you can imagine the geography, then down along the eastern coast of Mexico and around Cuba. So there is this kind of circle. The idea was to have an economic powerhouse there that would use the economy of the southern states, have legalized slavery, and it would continue on as a nation separate from the United States of America. And these people were very fanatical about this. Now, in the first book, one of the characters mentions the Knights of the Golden Circle. But then he also says, well, the Knights of the Golden Circle or that other organization, the Order of the Ivory Compass. I wanted to separate my secret society out from the more historically factual secret society so that I could explore some of the leaders and some of the founders of a secret society, have them show up in the books, which they do in book two and a little bit in book three. I wanted to make them more obviously evil 
So there's some historic truth there, but there's also a lot of fiction. I think making it your own organization was a wise idea because it certainly gave you more flexibility with the characters. Yeah, exactly. There's ties that the characters have to those villains where they suddenly realize, oh, gosh, this is a guy that maybe I didn't realize was part of the secret society or something, which must have been weird at the time. If you think about living in those years prior to the Civil War, you don't know who you're talking to. And you find out later on that this person is either a member of a secret society that wants to secede from the nation or maybe on the other side of things is an abolitionist. So I thought that was a very interesting thing of those times. It's also pertinent today because those individuals who want to secede from the United States are still around. And there are those secret organizations that still proliferate on the Internet and elsewhere. They've been given free license to exist. But this is something that has been part of American society since the beginning. Yeah, it really has. And I think it always will. As long as there are human beings, there's always going to be a desire for people to band together with like-minded people, regardless of what they espouse. So I thought it was fun. And a part of our Civil War history, we don't really know that much about. And I kind of like that as a basis for a novel. I was also taken with the concept of the mobile outlaw camp town of Bad Axe. Is that based on a historical place or did you make that up out of your imagination? I've talked before about the Devil's Nest, which is a rugged area along the Missouri River close to the farm where I grew up. In Devil's Nest, there was reputed to be such a movable outfit long ago. Some say Jesse James holed up in that area for a while, and we've talked about that. But the idea of mobile camp, of tents, and even maybe sometimes some permanent structures that could survive a winter, that would be an outlaw place where they could go and have commerce with each other and live and relax a little bit, confident somebody was watching the outskirts of the town for the law to show up, but it could move later on in the summer to a different area. I've always liked that idea too, so I've incorporated that in Seven Devils Road. The idea that when an outlaw goes to that area, they're safe. There's kind of this unspoken agreement. No rival can take them out in that town. I mean, that's a fascinating concept. And the wonderful thing about history is we as writers, it's a really fertile ground for our imaginations. We can take one little historical fact and blow it up into this entire story. These are the things that keep writing interesting. Yes, exactly. A Killing at Rimrock, which is the third book in the series, it's a different sort of story again, even though it starts out with the same Concord stagecoach Lyndon Reese used in the second book. Again, Texas Ranger Lynn Jarrett is on a mission of transport. This time he's carrying a high-ranking member of a regional cotton growers association out of Texas across the Red River to an expansive hacienda at Rimrock, which is a fictional place on the boundary of the Red River. What happens at Rimrock will propel Lynn and Reese back across into Texas on a desperate mission because you can't keep a Texas Ranger out of Texas. If you go by the title, I'm going to assume there's a killing. There is a killing. One Lynn can't prevent. It's in the blurb of the book, so I'll go ahead and say that it is one of his closest friends, and that puts him on something of a vengeance trail. Also, there's a potential killing at Rimrock he and the other hellbenders must prevent. This is more of a conspiracy novel than the other two? It is. We talked about some of those secret societies. Another thing that was all over the place in those months before the Civil War were conspiracy theories. We might think there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there today, but we have nothing on those people. 
Back then, people could believe all sorts of things even more readily than they do now because there was no internet or news media at hand to debunk something. So people could live in ignorance or believe things that might have been true or might not have been true without anybody arguing. Those conspiracies were huge. There's lots of conspiracy theories about the Texas Troubles, for instance, a day when fires erupted in small towns and camps all over north central Texas. Who could be causing them? Why would these fires show up on the same day? Was there a coordinated effort or was it just coincidence? All kinds of conspiracies raged. You saying that there were more conspiracies back then than there are today, you made my head hurt. Because <laughs> there's so many today. In Rimrock, you introduce one of the most colorful hellbenders, Mountain Man Steve. Yeah. Mountain Man is based on a guy that I knew in college who used to sit around naked and play with knives. <laughs> so you kind of had to know him. <laughs> oh, jeez. But also, I've recently been learning about the tomahawk as a utility tool and a weapon of both offense and defense from our friend Mark Hatmaker. And I'm currently kind of smitten with it. And who better, I thought, to wield the tomahawk than Mountain Man Steve? I'd like to read a segment from A Killing at Rimrock. Last time the piece I read was sort of philosophical. This time I chose some tomahawk action. You want to set it up for us? Sure. In the piece that you're going to read, Mountain Man Steve is staying at a hidden cabin in a west central Texas canyon. He's twisted his ankle during a hike, but he still needs to secure some supper for himself. And that's when he sees a rattlesnake. There was a reason the desiccated gash along the Caprock Escarpment cleaving east Texas from west was called Snake Bit Canyon. The rattling fat coil of spring-loaded meat Steve found in the rock clearing was one of them. Rattlers were as plentiful here as sheep on the Rio, and Steve preferred the tender white meat's flavor to just about anything else, especially with a beer. It's what he'd gotten used to. Using his gun to keep himself propped up on the bad ankle, he fingered the tomahawk loop of his pants. The war axe Steve carried was 15 inches long with a 6-inch long square flint head. The wood handle was carved and stained at the end to resemble a duck's head, while further up, the grip was wrapped in soft leather. The chipped flint head was held fast to the handle by tough rawhide. Steve maintained it on a regular basis. Years of carry had worn a smooth notch under the head, and the weapon fit snug in his hand. Years of practice made the war blade as deadly in Steve's hand as a six-shooter might be in another. A rumble of thunder hastened Steve's moves. After he secured the snake, he still needed to track down his horse. Wound tight in the wedge of a space under a waist-high, roughly-hewn round rock, the rattler weaved its exposed head up and back, pulling in as close to its stone shelter as possible. A clean kill would be tough. Better, Steve thought, if he could lure the old snake out of hiding. And it was an old snake, long and fat with scales flaking around its mouth. It moved a tad slower than it should have, seemed more complacent in its danger. Oh, the rattlers purred away, and the creature swayed back and forth with proper trepidation, but it didn't have the edge of a young warrior. It didn't have the spirit of a killer. Steve had the advantage there. Momentarily, Steve wondered about using the scattergun, but decided against it. In such close quarters, surrounded by granite and limestone, a load of shot would ricochet in a million directions, ripping into his own hide even as he cut his supper to fresh ribbons. No, the tomahawk would have to do. 
With one bold move, he lunged down onto his knees, swinging the axe into a fast horizontal arc only a few inches above the sandy red clay, swiping into the space under the rock, missing the rattler by less than an inch. Unable not to, the snake shot out at the tomahawk's head, slapping against it and recoiling back. Steve encouraged the old rattler to move. Hup too, damn your slinking guts. If the damn thing would slip outside the periphery of the boulder, one swift motion would cleave the head from the body. Steve got set to try again, and now the thunder came in a continuous wave. No, not thunder. Hoofbeats. Oh, holy hell, he said, turning his head as the shadow of the first wild horse leapt over his prostate forearm. If he hadn't been sprawled out hunting the snake, he would have lost his head. The second animal careened past, a blur of elbow, knee, hoof, fetlock, and tail. Then the pounding was deafening, and the air became a cyclone of horse flesh and flying dirt. It was the herd of wild horses he'd seen before. The storm must have driven them off course, circling the bands of frothy, screaming beasts into a frenzied tear. They angled over Steve's head, one after another, hooves like hard wooden mallets bludgeoning away. Steve yanked himself into a ball, pulling his legs up to his chest and embracing his knees with his arms. Pressing his right side into the rock he crouched behind, he willed himself to stay still, to become the rock as the string of crazed horses tore through the rim of the canyon. Almost immediately, a heavy club came down on his shoulder, sending shards of agony through his arm and down his ribcage. A spray of gravel pelted his forehead, and a limestone chip skimmed across his back, leaving a stinging gash. All Steve could do was wait out the stampede and pray he wasn't chopped to pemmican. So, the action isn't always gunplay or people fighting. No, absolutely not. There's plenty of that, but it is a traditional Western after all. In truth, most folks in the Old West were probably croaked by Mother Nature and not six guns. What's up next for the Hellbender series? Book three ends in the fall of 1860 before the election. I've got a ton of notes and ideas for the eventuality of the Civil War, and one way or another, the Hellbenders will return. Which sounds like my cue to recommend our listeners head over to Amazon and pick up the Hellbenders trilogy for Kindle or in paperback. Thanks for being with me today, Rich, and talking about Hellbenders. I really enjoyed the series, and I'm sure all of our listeners will as well. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself. Be kind to others and get yourself over to Amazon and read The Hellbenders. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.